just God, it's amazing. Life is just a marathon, so basic. Brush pain, that thing's how you make damage. Life ain't gotta be hard. Fort Meade Declassified. We're your hosts, Gloria Martin and Chad Jones from the Fort Meade Public Affairs Office. And in today's episode, we have with us Dr. Vince Houghton, director of the National Cryptologic Museum, just 10 minutes down the road from Fort Meade, to tell us all about what the museum has to offer to the community. Thank you for joining us today. Yeah, happy to be here. Can you start us off by providing the listeners a little bit of an overview about the museum and its significance? in preserving the history of cryptology? Yeah, so the National Cryptologic Museum has uh, been around for about 30 years. Most people don't know how long we've been around, but uh, and we, we spend our time uh, and our mission is to educate the public about the role of cryptology, about making and breaking of codes and ciphers in American national security and the history going all the way back to the beginning of the country and all the way up to the modern day. How does this museum in particular stand out amongst others in the area? So I know we're near DC. There's lots of other museums. To There's see. lots of museums. We are a government museum, so we're completely free, much in the same way as the Smithsonian's are. Uh, but as far as museums within the intelligence community, we're very unique in that we're the only fully public museum in the entire IC. All the other agencies have museums, but you have to get special permission to go there or special clearances. We don't. You just can drive up and walk in anytime you want to. We are. I guess, ironically, considering the NSA is the NSA, we're the only ones that are completely open to the public. You were mentioning a little bit before we got on that you worked at the Spy Museum, but this is different than that. I, I think when people hear cryptologic, they're 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 thinking spy, and they always. I mean, there there are elements of similarities between the two. Certainly, I mean, there, there's a section at the International Spy Museum that focuses on cryptology, but it's a small section, right? That museum is much much broader. Than this one is so they're they're taking a much broader view of the intelligence world looking at what agencies like cia do in human intelligence looking at covert action looking at counterintelligence we are taking a much deeper dive into a very specific aspect of the intelligence world and that's signals intelligence codes and ciphers elint those kind of things that nsa does and that our predecessor agencies did before nsa was formed an important history I mean, well, yeah, I mean, I think that's not overstating it to say there have been wars won and lost because of either good cryptology or bad cryptology. I think it's not overstating it to say that the United States would have a hard time existing today if it wasn't for our ability to make and break codes and ciphers, uh, starting with the American Revolution, going all the way up through the Second World War and then the Cold War. Uh, most of what we do on a day to day basis demands communication security. Right. right? And that's what NSA provides. And that's what we are as a museum is to demonstrate some of the technologies that are now obsolete and we're all completely unclassified. You're not going to get any secrets by coming here, but you'll see stuff that's recent uh, that's just become obsolete uh, about our abilities to keep our communications secure. And at the same time, our abilities to read the communications of others uh, and our adversaries. Uh, Historically, that has been incredibly important. So one of the unique things that you were telling us about is that everything in here is either one of a kind or been used or both? Yeah, so I mean, every single artifact in the museum is authentic. We have no replicas. We, we made a conscious decision when we were redoing the museum during COVID that we would not put anything on display that wasn't real. So if you come to the museum and you're looking at something and you wonder, is this really that? Yeah, it is, yeah. right? It's real, 100%, that's our guarantee. 
beyond that, the vast majority of our artifacts are one of a kind. Uh, we're talking about over 85% of the artifacts you see in this museum fall into the category of you can't see them anywhere else. They're not just examples of something. They're a thing that was used by a specific person in a specific historical event. They were the first one of something or the last remaining one of something on Earth. That's true for things from the Second World War, but all the way up to the modern day. Yeah, and we got to see a lot of those artifacts today. The curator, Dina Bowles, she took us over on a tour, and um, that's actually over on our YouTube channel if you guys want to go check it out. So speaking of curating, what goes into curating and maintaining the collection of the museum? A lot. I mean, I think that we, we have a curatorial team uh, that every day kind of sits back and says, what can we break now? Uh, really kind of, it's, it's the, we're, we're the chaos Muppets. We're the ones that say, can we find something new and interesting and cool that we can put on display that no one's ever seen before? And we have hundreds of artifacts on display here at the museum, but we have thousands in storage. And we also have the word out to the agencies and our partners around the world that if they run into something interesting that we may want to let us know and send it our way. So we're constantly looking to provide new and interesting things for the public. One of the, I think, the big dramatic new initiatives that we have at the museum is to be as dynamic as we possibly can. And by that, I mean constantly changing. We don't want you to come back in six months after you've been here and be like, oh, it's the same museum. We want you to see something new. And so I think Dina showed you we have a number of temporary rotating exhibits right now. We have four different rotating exhibits going on right now at the museum. Come see them now. If you come back in May, you won't see those same exhibits. You're going to see entirely new ones. So how do you go about letting people know a new exhibit's coming up? Or for something like you showed the machine that potentially was used, you know, how the Germans found out about yeah. D-Day. If that were a temporary display, how do you go about letting people know that, hey, this is leaving, come see it. And hey, this is coming, come see it. Yeah, well, we, we work with both social media uh, and traditional earned media as much as we possibly can. Uh, we are on X and we're on Facebook. We're soon to be on Instagram. So you can certainly hunt for us there. Uh, find daily announcements about hours, about what's coming on display. Uh, there'll be, you know, we're going to flip all these exhibits in the end of April. Uh, so around that time, you can check out either of those social media sites to see what's coming up uh, to get a bit of a preview. Uh, we also look to get our media. We look to, to talk to the traditional press uh, with our communications team to find ways uh, to get the message out to people. Uh, that's the key to everything. We talked a little bit, 30 years you've been here, obviously COVID has had an impact and you guys were closed down, yeah. which you use the time very well. How are the numbers? Are they coming back? Or are they... we, we think so. I mean, we, we again, we've only been open for a year and a half. So we took the first year of our, our being open to establish a baseline to say, what is, what is our audience going to look like? Uh, and then try to build from there. So we're only about halfway through that comparison. Okay. Uh, we're looking now to take advantage of kind of the hot times of being open longer hours. Uh, most museums will flex their, out, flex their hours to, you know, around spring break time and in the summer. Yeah. We didn't do that our first year because we wanted to collect data. Uh, now this year for the very first time, we're going to be flexing hours. So we're the last week in March, the first week in April, we're going to be open from 10 to 6 every day. Uh, and then in August, and then again between Christmas and New Year's, when no one's open, but we were, and that's like our craziest time, like hundreds and hundreds of people every single day. So now that we have that understanding, we're going to start reacting to that. 
and actually making it to where we can take advantage of the peak times. That combined with the fact that the word of mouth and, and, and information about the museum has now been broadened. So there are more people that know we exist. There's more people that are come here. It's a bit of a snowballing effect. The more people that show up, they go back to their homes, they tell their friends, and then more people come. So we really kind of look at this as a multi-year plan. You know, COVID shut us down for years. We redid the entire museum during COVID from ground to ceiling. We have new floors, new walls, new ceilings, new everything. So we're kind of starting from scratch. Yes, we've been open for 30 years, but this is a brand new iteration of the museum. So we're looking, you know, we want year two to be better than year one, and then year three to be better than year two and build upon that. And then do you have a, a website with yeah, the so, museum that it shows like ours, or, or is that, do you prefer people go? No, things? absolutely. There's museum.nsa.gov. Um, or you can just go to nsa.gov and search for the museum if you can't remember that. Uh, and we have a museum website. It does have the hours on it. It's updated. Uh, anytime there's like a code red or something that shuts us down, it's updated on there as well about our opening hours and if we're going to be open that day or not. And you guys do a lot. So we we do a lot with the fort and outreach with communities and schools. And we had, you know, our friend of Mead, our massive school Mead cluster. And you all came out to it or NSA came out. You guys do a lot of outreach to children. And I know you got a scout day coming up. Yeah. March 2nd. Can you talk a little bit about Scout Day and a little bit of how you try to appeal and bring in younger audience? Just about every single day that we're open, we have groups from schools here at the museum. Field trips from not just the local counties. We're talking about from Virginia and other places, bus their kids up here because we're we're a great museum for field trips, focus, you know, for people who want to focus on the STEM aspects yep. of history. That's the great combination of this museum. It's a history museum, but it's really heavily focused on STEM history. So just about every single day, our education team has classrooms full of kids coming through the museum. And then every so often we do events. And an event that's coming up that we do every year, it's actually multiple times a year, but one in the spring, is our Scout Day. Uh, we, we've done this in the past at night, but instead, you know, they've been so successful and so in demand that we decided to do an entire day on a Saturday on March 2nd dedicated scouts. It doesn't mean you have to be a scout to come to this, right? We want, we'll have awesome, cool activities for all ages. You don't have to be a scout, but the reason we're calling it Scout Day is a lot of the activities are geared toward helping scouts get certain requirements toward badges. But we have several offices within NSA who are going to be setting up tables throughout the museum, doing cool little activities. Again, it's, it's, it's set up for younger people, for scouts. It's always the adults that have the most fun. Yep because they get to kind of play with some of this stuff, like you're pushing the kids out of the way who actually want to do this stuff. Um, so again, it's not completely reserved just for scouts. We'd love for everyone to come these days, uh, but specifically because the activities, we've geared them to actually meet some of the requirements for badges. Uh, that's why it's kind of scout day, uh, but it's just a day of rule of fun at the museum that we're going to have our partners at the agency come uh, and talk a little bit about what they do, have hands-on activities, focus on what they do, not just STEM history as well. Um, and uh, you know, every year we have hundreds of people come. It's a really cool event. So will there be more interactive activities? Yeah, so the, the museum already has a, a, a pretty decent amount of interactive activities, everything from in our ancient crypto space where you kind of get hands on of some of the cryptologic methods that were used you know, thousands of years ago. We of course have the Enigma machines that the only place on earth you can actually touch a real Enigma and actually use it to encrypt and decrypt messages. 
Uh, most people keep their enigmas behind glass. We keep some of them behind glass. Uh, some of them were rare ones, but we actually let people touch and, and operate real captured German enigmas, which you just can't find anywhere else. Um, so we have a number of hands-on activities in our normal museum on a day-to-day -day basis. For Scout Day, we're just inundating the museum with hands-on interactive activities. Everywhere you look, there's going to be tables set up with things for people to do. And that's what makes the day so cool. What do you find? Well, I guess I'll, I'll go at it from this way. So you were, you've been in history for a long time. That, that's what you got. Yeah. You said you yeah. got three degrees. You're pretty smart. <laughs> you got through, you got, you know, you mentioned mathematics. You've been here for three and a half years now. What have you learned about cryptology and the history of cryptology that might have surprised you in regards to like its importance to, to what is done here? So I, I'm not sure I was surprised by its importance because certainly historically it's, it's impossible not to know that that's there. I, I think I was surprised by how avid the practitioners of it are. Mm. Like for a lot of people, it was, it, it's more than a job. And I know, you know, I, I don't see a lot of things as more than jobs, right? You work, you get paid, you do what you're supposed to do and you go home. That's a very yep. kind of Gen Alpha mentality. I'm Gen <clears> X, <throat> but I like the Gen Alpha mentality of, you know, earn your pay and then go do other things. But you don't just do cryptology as a job. Most most cryptologists live that. Like that's just yep. kind of who they are as people. And by that, I mean like on their off hours, they're doing crossword puzzles. Right. Or they're, you know, they're solving, you know, doing math problems for fun. You know, and it's, yep. just, and it's just kind of who they are as a personality and I, you know, you can read all the books that you want to about Alan Turing and others, but you don't quite grasp that until you've been right. around these people who just live and breathe that they just love solving puzzles. They love, you know, problem solving. I mean, that, of course that's true for most everyone in the intelligence community. I mean, that's what we do is, is we solve problems. And so, you know, we, we are a, a very specific breed of people who don't go, oh, that's too hard. We look at it and go, oh, that's hard. Ooh. Right. Yeah. And, and that's just, that's what we're surrounded by here at NSA. So we're going to take uh -oh. a quick break to hear from our command information chief, Chuck Yang. Hello. Chuck here from Command Information. Coming up in March, Armed Services Blood Program and Technical Job Fair. Our nation's blood supply is critically low, and Armed Services Blood Program needs your help now more than ever. Join us at Fort Meade for the next blood drive on Wednesday, March 6th, from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. at the McGill Training Center. Your donation could be a lifeline for someone in need. Make your appointment online at asbp.militarydonor.com. Looking for employment in the technical work field on Fort Meade? Join us for the first technical job fair of 2024 on Wednesday, March 13, from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. at Club Meade. Dress for success, bring your resume, and meet the employers across the installation. This event is open to the public and no registration is required. For more information, call 410-424-3246. For these information and more, visit our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash ftmead. Now back to the conversation. And we're back. One of the things you mentioned is everything changes all the time. So what can people expect for what you guys might show in April? Can you tell us a little bit or? So what's what's great about our job is that, um, and this flies in the face of, of 
everything the Department of Defense and NSA believes in a, in a structure like you need to know what you're doing two years at a time. We like to not know what we're doing a week ahead of time. <laughs> one, one of the things where we like to say, hey, we think we have an idea of what we're going to do, but we're not going to kind of solidify it and finalize it until we have to. And so as we love just constantly be on the lookout for something better. Like, I have a pretty good idea of what we're going to see in the summer. But I'm not going to say anything about it because it may not be the best thing. Because mm-hmm. I may stumble onto something tomorrow. We've had these wonderful opportunities. I mean, the things that are on display right now, we didn't have six months ago. We didn't even know existed six months Explain ago. Explain that a little bit. Yeah, so like we have multiple temporary exhibits. One of them uh, is on a woman named Meryl Goldberg. Uh, and Meryl Goldberg uh, was a musician, is a musician. Uh, she's still alive, um, still alive and doing great. Um, she and several of her musician friends snuck into the Soviet Union in 1985 uh, to meet with uh, dissidents and Jewish refuseniks uh, and had messages both sent in and brought out written in ciphering or sheet music. So they, you know, the average piano sheet music that you look at wow. and looks like notes, they actually turned it into a cipher that allowed them to bring in information to dissidents and then information out from the Soviet Union right on the nose of the KGB. And you didn't know you had that? Well, wow. we didn't have it, actually. We 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 ran into her, and she told us her story. <laughs> Coincidentally. And we're like, do you have stuff lying? She's like, oh, I've got everything. I'm like, we'd love to have that. So that's how sometimes this happens. Then you have the Elizabeth Friedman uh, exhibit, and there's two different cases full of her stuff. Uh, that is on loan from the Marshall, George C. Marshall Foundation, which is down in Virginia, we have a great relationship with them, uh, but we hadn't really investigated the idea of doing anything so Friedman-centered, Elizabeth Friedman-centered, except that now it's springtime, Women's History Month is in March. We wanted to do several exhibits focused on women's history, uh, and so we reached out to the Marshall Center and said, what do you got? And then so we got all sorts of things, you know, let's look through it. So we got a chance to, and we found some incredible artifacts there as well. And then the Queens of Code exhibit, which is our... our third major women's history uh, exhibit uh, is made up of artifacts from NSAers of the 60s and 70s who were trailblazers at the agency uh, in positions that were not normally allowed for women. Uh, some of the first physicists, women physicists at NSA, some of the first women computer scientists at NSA, engineers at NSA, people that actually ended up in roles that were at the height of the agency joined at a time where there were only, you know, you could count the number of women in their office in one hand, and they were complete trailblazers. We know those women very well, but we hadn't really hadn't had that conversation about what do you got lying around your attic? And right. finally, you know what? It'd be cool to do a Queens of Code exhibit. And so we reached out and said, what do you got? Like, what's lying around? And the answer was, well, I really don't have anything that would be in a museum. I'm like, let me be the judge of that. Right. Right. Tell me what you got, and I'll tell you if it's interesting. And then so it came out. There was a lot of really cool stuff that they had lying around. So we we're actually able to build an exhibit around their lives. You know, one of, one of them was a computer scientist, uh, designed some of the early things that we've used every day. Some of the early software for CD-ROMs, for ebook readers, wow. uh, for the first PCs. Um, she had stuff lying around, including the first ebook reader ever developed, right? So we now have Kindles and everything that's lying yep. around. The first ever one was developed with software that NSA had a hand in. We have an engineer who developed a system. Her first job out of Virginia Tech was developing a system to track Soviet missiles, um, the telemetry data of Soviet missiles. Literally graduated from Virginia Tech, came to work at NSA, and then they said, you're building this. And she's like, what, what? And she did. It was amazing. And then a a physicist um, who came to NSA at a time when there weren't any women physicists 
around let alone women physicists at NSA. And so for us, these are just fascinating women, but also a fascinating part of our history where we can say, you know, when a lot of other companies around the country in the 50s, 60s, and 70s had jobs set aside for women, like IBM had jobs for women at IBM, Hewlett right. Packard, jobs for women, Hewlett Packard, NSA was just, we're looking for physicists. We're looking for computer scientists. It wasn't phys women physicists or women computer scientists. We're just looking for anyone really good at their job. Right. And so, yeah, you can look at the government being somewhat backward when it comes to this, but NSA was in the forefront. NSA was ahead of lots of other people. And we want to show that. We want to show the history of uh, how NSA was a trailblazer in, in women's rights. So two things I would like to get to before we go. And I wanted to get back to not knowing what you have yet. So you were talking about out in there that some stuff just had, you don't know what necessarily will be cleared. That, I guess, gets back to that the stuff that's in here is used. Mm -hmm. You just don't know when it's available to you. Is that yeah, I mean, we, we, we have a pretty good understanding of, of the, the methods and the, the procedures behind getting things declassified. So we have an idea of kind of how things are kind of coming down the pipe. Yep. You know, it goes back to the whole sources and methods thing that, you know, if it's something that could potentially be used by an adversary against us, you're just not going to put it on display in a museum. Right. It's just not a good idea, but it's never guaranteed. But we have a pretty good idea. Sure. Nice. And then you might not know and I understood that you want to be uh, flexible in what might come out. You never know when the next cool thing might come. But your long term, you do have some long term goals for what you would like the the museum to be in regards to population that comes through prominence yeah i mean you know i i would love for people to include us in the list of things you got to do when you visit either baltimore or dc i'm not going to tell people to come here instead of going to the air and space museum that costs multiple billions of dollars and it's an incredible you go see apollo 11 great awesome go see apollo 11 <laughs> but if you've got a week here in washington or you're spending a couple days in baltimore <clears throat> put us on your agenda because I, I guarantee you'll see things here that you can't see anywhere else. I guarantee that you're going to get your money's worth since for free. So the area for the heroes is very well done. Well, that's designed explicitly for that, right? The idea is we have a memorial hallway that is somewhat separated from the rest of the museum yep. because it wants to give, we want to make sure we give the due respect to those that have given their lives in the service of cryptology. Well, one thing that the museum does show is that cryptology has certainly evolved. And, I, and I'm sure it, it's it's evolving every day with the men and women who work at the NSA today. That there's that's our job, right? The job right. of the agency is to evolve, be the evolvers, right? You know, it's not just to react to others; it's actually to kind of be the ones everyone else is reacting to. Right. And and I think that's something that we do a good job of here is showing that evolution. And, and while there are things that have dramatically changed, you know, we're using supercomputers that work together and 10, artificial intelligence. Yeah, we're, we're using just massive amounts of computing power and artificial intelligence and quantum computing and all these things. Yeah. The concept behind it is the same, right? It's still fundamentally the same thing is you're trying to communicate without the bad guy stealing your communications. You're trying to steal the bad guy's communications without them knowing you're doing it. And you're essentially hiding the information that you're sending in, in case you're enciphering it. Sometimes it's in ones and zeros or it's in quanta or other things. Back in the day, you would use numbers or it's shifting to other letters or other things. But conceptually, it's identical. Do you ever have programmed or talks here? We like do. Yeah. So before COVID, there were pretty frequent. 
the intent is to start doing programming later this year. Nice. Um, maybe even in late spring. Uh, and that'll be something that's announced to the website, through social media and traditional media, um, to have talks, to have people come in. Uh, even if they can't make it in, uh, we try, we want to live stream this stuff as well so people can watch it online. Um, so yeah, that's in the planning stages. So earlier you mentioned the collection dedicated to Women's History Month. Do you guys have anything like that? Or maybe you're working towards building something like that for Black History Month? Well, so there, there's a bit of an overlap. We, we've done Black History Month stuff in the past. One of the things that we tried to do to integrate those who are not white dudes, because the NSA was just white dudes for decades, right? To get, integrate people within the broader exhibits. So the idea was not to kind of have a, a segregated and separated out. We have a lot of really interesting artifacts that are on display already as part of our permanent exhibit focused on black Americans and cryptology. In essence, the artifacts that we have that would be focused on the black history story are on permanent display already. And because women became part of the cryptologic ranks much earlier than black Americans did, at least at some of the higher levels, there's less available right now, but as things become more and more declassified, if you look at kind of the 60s and 70s and the 80s, that was the heyday of when people of color kind of became prominent at NSA. You started to have people on the executive side of people on the mm. senior service side. Um, before that, there were few and far between. There were some, and those people are featured inside the museum. But as things and as stories and as, as missions uh, become more and more declassified, I'm betting that in the future, we'll have plenty of opportunity to do really interesting and cool uh, temporary exhibits focus on black history. Um, and not just that, I mean, we, we're looking at, you know, Pacific Islander and Asian American history. We're looking, obviously we have Native American stuff with the Navajo code talkers, uh, but that because that was declassified. Um, but as we're waiting for just the average everyday stuff to be declassified, I think we'll have more opportunities to do not the white guy history, which I'm always Great. looking for because that, that, you know, that's not representative of the intelligence community as a whole, mm -hmm. certainly not representative of the DOD. Uh, it's just, unfortunately, we only have the artifacts that we could show from 50 years ago. And that's when it unfortunately was indicative of these agencies that it tended to be predominantly white, um, unless they're niche organizations, right? You know, you, you had Asian Americans who were involved when you're dealing with like Asian languages and the Vietnam War and stuff like that but very little when it came to people doing high level things at the agency that we can actually talk about. Mm -hmm. And that's the magic right. part, right? It's, it's, there are so many great stories that just can't be told yet that will be in the future. So before we go, is there anything else you want our audience to know about the museum? No, I think we've covered a lot of it. I mean, we're, we're in a position that I think has some huge advantages that a lot of other museums don't. And that we, we're, we're, we're big enough and small enough that we can do things that others can't. We're big enough that we can kind of throw our weight around a little bit and get cool artifacts and be like, hey, we're the NSA. Give us your stuff. But we're small enough that we're very flexible and, and have the ability to like flip and turn around an exhibit in a couple days. Right. And we're flexible in the fact that we can kind of have fun with what we're doing. Right. I, I know people that worked at the Smithsonian and to put a new exhibit, it takes like three years. We just did an exhibit in like two days. And we write our own labels and we throw them on the wall. And they, as long as there's nothing classified in them, they roll. Do you have to get, God, it's, it's so fascinating to me. Do you have to get it cleared or is it already given to you cleared? No. So, so if it's an artifact, 
there's a, there's a difference. So most artifacts by themselves are not classified because in totality they, they become don't. Something. Well, because you know you don't you don't know you're just looking at a machine. It does. It's just a piece right. of hardware, right? It's the story that tends to be the classified part. Okay. That's... So I've had people be like, "Oh, sure, you can show that in the museum." I'm like, what can I say about it? Like nothing. <laughs> like, do not know how museums work. Um, so there's a lot of things where, you know, the actual gadget or whatever it is, is not secret all that much, but what it did or what it was involved in or who used it, very classified. Um, so that's the process that actually has to go through a declassification system. Yeah. Basically, we write up a label based on what we know or what we want to say about an artifact, and then it goes through pre-publication review, just like if we're writing a book. Yep. And the prepo people look at it and make sure that there's nothing classified in it. And when they bless off on it, then we're ready to rock and we throw it up on the wall with our graphics team and we're off and running. Um, I mean, as long as it's historically accurate, which again, we work very closely with the Center for Cryptologic History on that, uh, and it's not classified, that's basically the two things that I have to worry about right. uh, before I put something on a wall for the visitor to read. Well, thank you so much for joining us no here problem. today. You can definitely learn more about the museum over on our YouTube channel. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Fort Meade Declassified. We hope you enjoyed our conversation as we learned more about the National Cryptologic Museum. Remember to stay connected with Fort Meade on social media and the Miami Post app for the latest installation updates. And we'll catch you next time on Fort Meade Declassified. Oh